Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 43. We began looking at these verses last Sunday, and we noticed as we looked at them that in the first part of this passage, Jesus points to his death and resurrection as that which makes the impossible possible. The majority of the the previous chapter was uh, dedicated to showing us that for man, salvation is impossible. Man, by his good works, cannot establish his own righteousness before God. He, He cannot earn God's justification, and therefore he cannot earn for himself eternal life. He he cannot earn for himself an inheritance in the coming kingdom of God. For man, salvation is impossible. But for God, the impossible is possible. We saw this in the tax collector who, who stood in the temple praying. Jesus told us that despite the fact that he had no righteousness of his own, he went home justified. We saw this in in Jesus' invitation to children. Jesus said, let the children come, for to such belong the kingdom of God. In fact, if you do not come as a child, you cannot come at all. But how is it that a tax collector can be justified? How is it that that a child can inherit the kingdom? It is not because they have some hidden merit in themselves, but rather It is because salvation has been secured for them by another. It is because God has done for them what they could not do for themselves. And Jesus tells us in verses 31 through 34 that He has done this through Jesus Christ. He has done this through Jesus' death and resurrection. As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised again for our justification so that in Him, through what He has done for us, we who were justly deserving of condemnation have instead been justified. That we who deserved the curse of the law have instead received the blessing of the Lord. That we who were justly sentenced to death have instead been given eternal life. These things are ours, not in ourselves, not through our own efforts, but they are ours in and through Jesus Christ alone. It is only by His death and resurrection that we have been saved. And yet, we're going to be told in verse 34 that the disciples didn't understand. They didn't see it. They, they, didn't, they didn't really get it. And I think it's safe to say that there are many in the church today who are in their same shoes. There are many who don't get it. There are many who don't yet see, who do not understand the necessity of Jesus' death and resurrection. So let us read together the passage and then see what it is that Jesus intends to do about our blindness. Let us read together beginning with verse 31. This is the very Word of God. And taking the twelve, He said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, 
and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For He will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging Him, they will kill Him. And on the third day, He will rise. But they, that is the disciples, understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for His blessing upon the preaching of His Word here this morning. Father in heaven, we do ask that You would be with us as we hear this Word preached. I pray that You would be with me, that my words would be faithful and true. And I pray that You would be with each one here, that their ears and their minds and their hearts would be open to receive Your truth that they might be renewed and sanctified by it, and that they might be empowered by Your Spirit to bring forth its fruit in their lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we are picking up this text where we left off last Sunday, and so I want us to begin by looking at the disciples' blindness. We, we see it there in verse 34. After telling his disciples about his impending death and, and resurrection, Jesus, or Luke tells us that Jesus' disciples didn't get it. Verse 34, they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So what is it exactly that the disciples don't get? What is it exactly that the disciples don't see? Clearly they understand that, that Jesus is, is some sort of Savior. Clearly they, they understand that, that Jesus is the one who is going to rescue them, who's going to rescue Israel and establish the, the kingdom of God. That's why they are with Him. They, they understand that, that He is the Messiah, that He is the, the promised coming King. What they don't understand is how the promised king could come to die. They, they don't understand why Jesus is talking about his death. They, they don't understand why, why Jesus is, is telling them that he is going to go to Jerusalem and be humiliated. They thought that when Jesus got to Jerusalem, it was the Romans who were going to be humiliated. They thought when Jesus got to Jerusalem, it was the Romans who were going to be uh, turned out. That, that then Jesus would establish his throne and, and rule as, as David's greater son from that point forward. They didn't understand how death could fit into the plan that they had in mind because they didn't understand their own need for that death. 
They didn't understand why they would need Jesus to die for them. They, they, they didn't understand why they would need Jesus to stand in their place and take upon himself the curse of the law. They simply didn't see themselves that way. They thought that their attendance to the law was enough. Remember Peter's response to Jesus after the rich young ruler walked away sad. The the rich young ruler who thought that he had kept the law perfectly. When he finally saw the true meaning of the law, when when he finally felt the full weight of the law, he walked away sad because he knew it was beyond him. But not the disciples. The disciples were pretty sure they they had done their part. They were pretty sure that they had kept it. Lord, we have walked away from everything. We've done what you asked. And so they did not understand their need for a substitutionary death. They did not understand their need for, for the Lamb of God to die in their place. They knew they needed a Savior They knew they needed someone who was stronger than them. They knew they needed someone with power to deal with what they couldn't deal with themselves. But they didn't see their need of of someone to shed their blood so that they might be forgiven. And when you fail to see yourself as a sinner in need of a substitute, the consequences are grave. They can be twofold. It can go one of of two directions. If, if, If you see yourself as having done enough, if you see yourself as as righteous, then you become arrogant. And arrogant people, they they relate to God as a debtor. They relate to God as one who owes them. And and we hear people talk this way all the time, do we not? They they complain against the providence that God brings into their life. They, They complain that God has allowed certain things to happen. Well, why are they complaining? They're complaining because they think, I don't deserve this. I deserve better. God is my debtor. He owes me. This is not fair. It's what my my children say to me all the time. They, They think this isn't fair. Life isn't fair because they are quite confident that they deserve better. It's the way that we relate to God when we think that we are righteous. But not only do we relate to God as our debtor, but we relate to others with contempt. We relate to other, other sinners as, as those who aren't quite worthy, as those who, who don't quite measure up. We don't have compassion for their problems. We don't have, have compassion for uh, the, the situations that they find themselves because, of course, they have problems. Look at their life choices. They've shot themselves in the foot. Their, their wounds are self-inflicted. Des- they deserve what they're getting. And, and when you are arrogant... It is, it is difficult for you to have compassion on those who are suffering. It is difficult for you to, to have empathy for, for those who are hurting. Because you assume that, well, of course they're hurting. That's, that's what they deserve. It's, it's the trouble that they've brought upon their own head. They made their bed. Let them lie in it. And not only do you struggle to, to have empathy for their, their struggles, but you, you struggle even to share with them the good news of the gospel because you just assume they wouldn't be interested they're not the kind of people who believe the gospel. They're not the, the kind of people who would, who would be interested in, in Jesus. That's what people like me are for. <laughs> you know, the gospel's for, for me. I'm, I'm smart enough to see it. I'm, I'm good enough to know. I, I, I have special insight, but I'm not going to share it with them. And we see that, that when you fail to see yourself as a sinner, 
It leads you to to be arrogant. It leads you to to relate to God as your debtor and to, to relate to your neighbor with contempt. Or it could actually go the other way. When you don't see your need of a Savior, it can actually begin to destroy you. The more you realize that your first self-assessment was wrong. When you're confident in yourself, that confidence is easily undermined. When you trust in your own righteousness, your your trust is, is easily corrupted. It easily fails. Because it doesn't take too long for you to show your true colors. You may be able to hide it from others, but you will see it. You will begin to see your sin. You will begin to see the ways you fall short. You will begin to see the ways that you do not measure up. And if you do not understand that Jesus came to die in your place as the substitutionary sacrifice for your sins, then you will be destroyed by your guilt. Because you will assume that it means that you have been disqualified. You assume that it means that there is no hope for someone like you. But of course, seeing the truth, beginning to to see who Jesus is, beginning to to see the, the significance and the importance of His death and resurrection, it has exactly the opposite effect. It, it works exactly in, in reverse. The one who gets it will be humble and gracious. The one who begins to, to see what it is that Jesus came to do will be humbled. They, they, will, they will be truly humble. It's not just that they will act humble. We sometimes say that. Well, I need to act more humble. No, you don't. You need to be more humble. You need to see the truth about who you are. It's not that you need to keep your arrogance hidden. It's that you need to lose your arrogance. You need to truly understand who you are. You need to see yourself as a sinner saved by grace. You need to see yourself as a beggar who has been shown mercy. And when we begin to understand that that we have been reconciled to God only through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it humbles us. It reminds us that that we could do nothing. That for us, in our own power, salvation was impossible. But God, through His Son, has done the impossible for us. And so it humbles you. But at the same time, it makes you bold. We sometimes think those don't go together. We think, well, if you're you're humble and you're meek, then you won't be confident and bold. But, But actually, it's when you're humble that you are finally set free to be bold. Because your boldness and your confidence is not in you, but it is in another. If I was playing pickup basketball at the, at the Y, I would not be confident in my own abilities. But if Michael Jordan was on my team, I would be bold. I would be bold because I would know that, that the, uh, my confidence rests in another. Not in my own ability, not in what I am going to do, but what he is going to do for me. And that is the boldness that we have in Christ. Yes, we will be humbled, but we will be bold. We will be confident because we know that our salvation, that our life has been bought and paid for by another. And it is this confidence that that sets us free to live the Christian life. It is this confidence that sets us free to, to leave all and follow Christ. 
It sets us free to, to leave because it, it sets us free to say that, that we have no rights to, to anything. We, we have no rights. We, we can leave behind anything. We can, we can do whatever He asks. And we can give it up knowing that whatever we give up, He will, he will supply far more than we could ever ask or imagine. Whatever we give up, we, we can't outgive God. Whatever we give up, he, he will be there with us, working all things together for our good. His blessing may not look like the American dream, but it will be far better than the American dream. He, he may not give us personal peace and prosperity now, but He will give us His peace that surpasses all understanding. He will give us joy in the Holy Spirit. He will give us assurance of His love. He will give us a sense of, of calling to, to purpose so that we know our work is not in vain. He will surround us with a, a family of, 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 of true brothers and sisters in Christ who, who know us and love us and support us and encourage us. When we have this humble confidence that says we have been reconciled to the Father through Jesus Christ, we will be humbly confident to leave and follow Him to do all that we have been called to do. And that's why it is so important that we see. It's why it is so important that we understand who Jesus is and understand what it is that that Jesus has has come to do. It is failing to see Jesus. It is failing to understand the significance of His death and resurrection that that limits us, that, that cuts us off, that prevents us from running well the race that has been set before us. And so the question is simply this. What are we to do if we don't see it? What are we to do in those moments when, when we are blind? What are we to do if, if we've never seen it? Some are in that boat. Some have, have never seen it. Some have never had their eyes opened. Some, for, to some, these truths are still hidden. For others of us, we, we've seen it, but we're like that father who says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, but I, but I still fade in and out of, of, of blindness. I see, but I see men like, like trees walking. It's not yet perfectly clear. And so whether you are an unbeliever who needs to see for the first time or a believer who just needs to have your right sight restored daily, what do we do when we are struggling to see? What do we do when, like the disciples, we fail to understand these things? That's the question. That's the, the question that's before us this morning. What do we do when we don't see. And I think that is exactly the question that Luke intends to answer with this story of Jesus healing the blind beggar. It is no accident that, that, Jesus, that Luke puts this story right after the story about the disciples not getting it. Remember, that's what, that's what Jesus' miracles are so often for. Jesus' miracles are signs. They are, they are pointers. They, they reveal to us truths about the kingdom. We, we sometimes think that, well, Jesus came to do miracles, but not really. Jesus came to proclaim the kingdom of God. Remember, there was a, a situation early in Jesus' career where he was healing many. And the disciples thought that it would be a great place for him to just sort of set up camp and let all the sick people come to him and he could, he could heal them all. But Jesus didn't do that. 
But rather what Jesus did is Jesus said, listen, I've got to move on to the next town to preach the gospel there as well. That is why I came out. That is the goal of my public ministry. I came to preach the good news of the gospel. And the miracles point to that truth, but they weren't the main thing that Jesus came to do. The the miracles show us the the truths that Jesus was proclaiming in intangible, visible form. And that's exactly what this miracle is about. Yes, it is a true story. It is a historical fact. Jesus truly healed a man who was blind sitting outside of, of Jericho. That is history. That is fact. But it is a history, it is a historical fact that Jesus uses to teach us something about who he is and what he came to do. So the very first thing that we need to to see in this story is that in the same way that Jesus healed this blind man, he is able to heal our blindness. Jesus came to give sight to the blind, and not just to the physically blind, but he came to give sight to those who are spiritually blind. And as I said, whether you are an unbeliever who needs to see these truths for the first time, or whether you've been a a believer for 50 years, you struggle with blindness. You struggle with not seeing. You need to have your eyes open. You you need to see. It's something that I I need regularly. I'm constantly needing to be reminded of the, the truths that I know. I'm constantly needing to have my eyes reopened to the reality of who Jesus Christ is. It is, it is so easy for, for me to set my eyes on myself and on, on my sin and on my, my failure and to forget Jesus and to, to forget His work. And in such moments, we need to approach Jesus. We need to come to Him for healing. But how do we do that? How do we approach Jesus? How do we come to Him for the healing that we so desperately need? We, we see it here in the story. I think this, this blind man, this, this blind beggar, he, he shows us how to approach Jesus. And the first thing that we notice is that this blind man approaches Jesus as the son of David. Did you see it there? He, he cries out. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. As soon as he hears that that Jesus is passing by, this is immediately what he cries out. And he wasn't told that Jesus, the son of David, is passing by. In fact, he was told that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And yet he knows that this Jesus, this Jesus from Nazareth, he's heard the stories. He knows who this Jesus is. He says, Jesus, son of David. What's the significance of that? Why is it significant that this man calls Jesus the the son of of David? Well, you remember who David is. David is the the first and great king of Israel following Saul, who was was taken away. And And the promise that God made to David was that his son would sit upon the throne forever. And there was great hope that that would be Solomon, but, but we clearly see that Solomon was not up to the task. Solomon was not the eternal king that, that we needed. And in fact, Solomon started uh, the nation of Israel on a trajectory that led finally to their exile, to their being taken out of the land and, and into uh, bondage in a foreign country. But there was a promise made. The, the prophets came again and again and said, listen, 
You are suffering for your sins. You are suffering the consequences of your unbelief and your rebellion. But God's promises are not null. They are not void. God will do all that He said He will do. From the stump of Jesse, David's father, there will grow a new shoot. There will grow a new tree. David's greater son will finally come. And when he comes, he will establish the kingdom. He will bring to fulfillment all that God had promised to do. That is who this man, this blind man, thinks that Jesus is. He recognizes Him to be the promised Savior. David's greater Son. The One who would come to bring the kingdom. The One who would come to do all that God had promised to do for His people Israel. And when we come to Jesus, we must come to Him as the Son of David. We must come to Him as the Savior that we so desperately need. We must come to Him as the one sent by God to do for us what only God could do. The one who who comes to establish the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. You see, there are many today who want to come to Jesus as a teacher. There are many who want to come to Jesus as a rabbi. They want Jesus to tell them what they must do to inherit eternal life. They want Jesus to tell them what they must do to establish their own righteousness with God. But Jesus will not allow us to regard Him merely as a teacher. He is not only a teacher. He is the Son of David. He is the Savior. And when we come to Him, we must come to Him looking for Him to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We must come to Him not merely as an instructor, not merely as a guru, not merely as a rabbi. We must come to Him as our Savior, asking Him to do what we cannot do for ourselves. And that is really our second point. Because that is exactly what the blind man is asking. He is coming to Jesus to do for him what he cannot do for himself. And that's why he comes to Jesus without shame. That doesn't mean he comes with nothing to be ashamed of. That's not what it means. To be shameless is, doesn't mean to have nothing that you are uh, that's worthy of shame. In fact, you have to have something worthy of shame in order to truly be shameless. Because to be shameless means to come without regard, without concern, without anxiety about your shameful condition. And that's exactly the way that this man approaches Jesus. We we see it in the way that he responds to those who rebuke him. Remember what happened? This man starts crying out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have, have mercy on me. And the crowds tell him to be quiet. The crowds rebuke him. The crowds tell him that that he ought not to to bother Jesus. We've we've seen this before. It's the same thing that the disciples told the parents who were bringing their children to Jesus. What are they thinking? Why Why would they try to prevent anyone from coming to Jesus? Why do they rebuke this man? Well, I think the same logic holds here as as it did earlier with the, the disciples. These people, the the crowds, the the disciples who are following Jesus, they do not think that this man is worthy of Jesus' time. Jesus is on an important mission. He's on his way to Jerusalem and he's getting close. He's he's made it all the way to Jericho. He doesn't have time to be delayed by by such a person as this. This man is not worthy. He, He doesn't offer any potential of great discipleship. He can't have a position of leadership in the kingdom. He's a blind beggar after all. 
But the beggar will not allow his shame to keep him. When he's rebuked, he cries out all the louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. And again, we must come with the same shameless approach. We must not let thoughts of of greater health make us linger. We, We must not hold back until we get our act together. We must not come back until we feel we can offer Jesus something of of value. We must come to Him as we are, without concern for our shameful condition. We must come to Him in our true condition, asking Him to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. This is the way that we must approach Jesus. And we must come to Him, asking Him, to heal us. We must come to Him acknowledging our need. Again, notice what happens when when this man is finally brought to Jesus. Jesus asks him simply, what is it that you want me to do for you? What is it that you want? Why are you crying out to me? And He says plainly, let me recover my sight. He acknowledges that He is blind. He acknowledges that that He cannot see And he says simply, let me recover my sight. And again, I think it's a picture of how we must come to Jesus. We must come to Him as the Savior, as the the Son of David. We must come to Him shameless in our condition. And we must come to Him asking Him to do for us what we so desperately need. Lord, open the eyes of my heart that I might see You. If your heart is cold, ask Him to to kindle your love. If if your desires wane, ask Him to to create in you a zeal and a passion for His glory. If you are blind and do not see His beauty, ask Him to open your eyes that you might see Him. Come to Him acknowledging your need. Asking Him to do for you what you so desperately need. But come to Him asking only for mercy. Don't come to Him bargaining. Don't, don't come to Him pointing to your, your past righteousness. Don't come to Him promising better in the future. We don't come to Jesus to bargain with Him. We come to Him asking for His mercy. Lord, I offer nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to Your cross I cling. Lord, clothe me. Lord, feed me. Lord, open my eyes. Lord, make me whole. Not because I am worthy, but because You are merciful and gracious. Because You abound in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is what it means to approach Jesus with faith. It's exactly what what Jesus says. It's, It's Jesus' own assessment. Notice what He says. He says, your faith has made you well. Approaching me as you have, you have approached me in faith. You have approached acknowledging the truth about who I am. Acknowledging the truth about who you are. Acknowledging the truth about what you need me to do. And acknowledging the truth about why I might do it for you. You have come to me as the Savior. As one in in desperate need. With nothing to offer. Asking only mercy. That you might recover your sight. This is what it means to approach Jesus with faith, and it's what we must do. We must approach Jesus with faith. We we must come to Him asking what we need, not for our sake, but for His sake, 
Not because we are good, but because He is good. Not because we deserve it, but because He is merciful. This is the faith that receives Jesus' healing. And that's the promise, that if we will come to Him as this blind man comes, we will be healed. He will open our eyes. And it is that new vision of who Jesus is that leads us into discipleship and dexology. It's what we see in the the last part of this story. The third thing we see here is the fruit of the healing. Notice verse 43. Immediately, we're told that he recovered his sight. And having recovered his sight, what did he do? Having recovered his sight, he followed him and glorified God. He didn't follow in order that he might show his his worthiness over time, that he might in turn eventually be healed. But rather, he came to Jesus asking only mercy. And because he asked mercy, he was healed. And having been healed, he began to follow. The the, the following, the the obedience, the the faith, these were the fruit of Jesus' gift. These were the, the fruit of his healing. He healed him. He, he, he set him free from his bondage. He, he gave him eyes to see. And having recovered his sight, we're told that he began to follow. He became a disciple of Jesus Christ. But more than that, he became a worshiper. He became a worshiper. He, he began to worship God through Christ. He, he glorified God, praising God for the deliverance that He had worked. Praising God for His, his goodness and his, his mercy. And it was coming to Jesus in faith that led to this harvest of, of doxology and discipleship. And this is the way that it must always work in the Christian life. If we, if we seek to, to be good disciples in order that we might get the grace that we need, we turn the Gospel on its head. But if we will come to Jesus shameless, if we will come to Jesus acknowledging our need, if we will come to Jesus asking only mercy, such faith will receive His blessing and such faith will bring forth in us true worship, true doxology, and true obedience, the true discipleship. And not only will it bring it forth in us, but notice, it will bring it forth in those whom God has has woven into the fabric of our life, those who are around us. For it was not only this man who gave glory to God, but we're told at the very end that all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This man, by his life of faith, by seeking the, the mercy of his Savior, brought glory to the name of Jesus Christ. People gave glory to God because what they saw Jesus do in his life. And this is a picture of the way that that the church works. We sometimes think that that we need to to be better. We we need to to do better if we are to be faithful witnesses. If we are to to call others to, to faith in Christ. But in a very true sense, it is by letting other people see what Christ has actually done in us. Not what we've done for Him. But by letting others see what He has done for us that we are able to call them and say, hey, you're like me. You're a blind beggar looking for bread. Let me show you where it can be found. You're a a blind man in need of healing. Let me show you who can set you free from your imprisonment. 
Let me show you the man who can open your eyes, for he did it for me. This is the way the Gospel works. As we come to Him in faith, He heals us. And through our healing, not only do we begin to praise God, but others begin to praise God with us. And in this way, Jesus is able to take those who are weak, those who are jars of clay, those who are unworthy vessels, and He's able to fill them with the treasure of the Gospel. And because He is not only able to heal us, but because He is able to use us to proclaim the glory of His name, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we do ask that You would open the eyes of our hearts. That You would open our eyes to see You. And that as we see You, that You would renew our minds and transform our lives to the praise of the glory of Your grace. So that not only might we thank You and and praise You, but that others might join us in giving You the glory and the fame that Your name so deserves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.